Picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. Almost 20 years following the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the country finds itself yet again at a crossroads. There have been recent struggles in forming a government and parliament, persistent threats of armed groups and international actors, as well as popular disappointment with the viability of the state, where promises and expectations still do not meet reality. In April 2022, the Holling Center hosted a virtual dialogue program between the United States and Iraq to determine pathways forward. Iraq's strategic importance to the region remains evident. The stability of Iraq and its relationships safeguards security in the region. However, participants strongly supported that there's also a need to look beyond the security relationship and explore avenues for partnership in other areas, such as economic development, environment, trade and finance, energy, and education. So to pick up where we left off with Iraq, we'd wanted to take a look at recent developments and see where the country may be heading. We are pleased today to bring back two dialogue participants. Zainab Shukar is a non-resident researcher at the Emirates Policy Center and an assistant professor of sociology at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. Her work explores the impact of oil revenue dependency on economic, political, social, and environmental developments in the MENA region, emphasizing Iraq's past, present, and future. She has published in multiple academic journals, research centers, and think tanks. Zainab, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me here. Dr. Munkith Dagger is the CEO and founder of Independent Institute of Administration and Civil Society Studies, a research group in Iraq, and a Gallup International board member. He conducted Iraq's first ever public opinion poll in 2003. He holds a PhD in public administration from the University of Baghdad College of Administration and an economics and master's degree in war sciences. He was a professor of public administration and strategic management in Baghdad, Basra, and at the National Defense University. Munkith, welcome to the program. Hi, uh, I'm so happy to be with you today. Thank you both for joining us and for your previous participation in our Holling Center Dialogue on U.S.-Iraq relations. It's great to have both of you here to discuss what the future of Iraq is going to be. But let's begin with a description of the status quo. Iraq has recently been experiencing political unrest resulting from deadlocks in forming a government. Can you provide us an overview of what the political formation is in the country? And what does this mean for the people of Iraq? On 27th of October uh, 2022, the majority of the Iraqi parliament members voted uh, to approve the new uh, Iraqi government um, Al-Sudani government. This is the seventh elected government since 2003. Iraq has suffered from a complete political paralysis since its federal Supreme Court issued a decision in February, last February, that the parliament must have a two-third quorum to elect uh, uh, president who suppose, according to the Constitution, to appoint the candidate uh, of the winning party to, to be the new uh, prime minister. No party can get 
two-thirds of the parliament seats for sure uh, because of the Iraqi election system, the new government right now enjoy a very unique position in Iraq uh, modern history and a strategic advantages uh, because it's for the first time a government enjoy such majority in the parliament with almost no opposition. It's also enjoy the advantage of a huge financial surplus due to the uh, oil uh, high prices uh, since uh, two years now. Yet, it is facing a big challenges as well. The Sadrists uh, who feel that they have been unfairly pushed out or kicked out of their right as election winners to establish the government, they are the only party actually in the Iraq right now who can bring millions of protesters to the streets in a few hours. So al-Sudani government will always be very cautious that this could happen at any moment right now. In addition, all polls that we have conducted showed a huge amount of negative feelings toward the uh, state in general and the political process in particular among uh, uh, Iraqis. Despite the, the good financial status of, of the government right now, Iraq economy is also badly suffering from unemployment, which is more than 25% right now. Poverty, 40%. Inflation, almost between 10 to 15%. All these challenges make it very uh, easy to expect uh, uh, not to ex sorry not to expect a long honeymoon uh, for al Sudani government. So we see a picture here where there may be a theoretically functioning government because it's seated it has enough of a majority to to pass legislation but there's still a lot of uh, disappointment. So Zainab, I, maybe we could talk a little bit more. Uh, about what you're hearing about what this means for the people of Iraq and some of the other challenges that the new government, but more importantly, the country and the people are facing at this time. I think one of the major crises that's facing um, Iraq specifically at this moment is a question of decline of legitimacy. The political regime after 2003, the regime that emerged, this hybrid state that is and, you know, can be sustained by access to oil resources and oil revenues, allowed for a lot of these political actors that came to the scene to create sort of states within the states. And so there is this idea of providing access to um, employment, protection, resources, and most importantly, sort of a sense of solidarity and identity to the population when there is sort of a decline in the national identity for um, a lot of Iraqis post-2003. What happened is that a lot of these groups failed at achieving that. Um, there was limited access to those at the top of the food chain, but for the average Iraqi citizen, they lacked really access 
to employment, to uh, functional uh, infrastructure and services, to even a sense of identity and solidarity came under threat. And so we see that a lot of these groups have failed to address or keep their promises. And we see before 2019, multiple protests that had um, economic and political grievances. Um, they represented that decline. But I think the stream specifically, the 2019 stream uprising, uh, represent really a turning point in terms of how citizens feel about the states. Um, it provided an alternative. If you speak to, um, you know, Iraqi protesters now, especially the youth, the tree movement is not well organized. There is no clear sort of emerging uh, political and economic alternative, but it represented an alternative in terms of identity and a sense of group solidarity and cohesion for a lot of people. And so that is a legitimacy crisis. When the elections happened, the turnout rate was like record low. And so that too is shows a decline in terms of people believing that political change can happen through sort of a democratic process, through voting. There is um, not a lot of trust in the political institution or elected you know, officers and elected um, you know, politicians. And then you have El Sadras winning, um, you know, the majority of the seats, even though, uh, you know, it's really due to great campaigning strategies and, you know, their ability to understand the new um, election law and so on. But then they are not participating right now in the government. So that's another hit to the legitimacy, um, sort of the legitimacy of the government right now. We are expected to see more um, issues in terms of population growth, in terms of climate change, et cetera, that will put added pressure on an already declining um, capacity of the state and its institution. When combined with this decline in legitimacy, I think for the average citizen, um, that will be uh, a major problem for the overall stability of the economic and political system in Iraq. We'll talk a little bit more about some of those additional external pressures uh, in a moment. But mm -hmm. what I'd like to do is, is uh, focus a little bit on this question of um, legitimacy and the viability of a liberal democratic institutions in Iraq, which I know are still relatively nascent. And we've both, uh, both of you have talked about the corruption that's already been inherent in the system. So I'd like to sh shift to, back to Munkith, uh, if, if we could. You know, turbulence in the Iraqi state over the last decade is has been well documented. This is not the only uprising. This is not the only time they've had trouble uh, forming uh, a government. This has led some to question, and we talked about this before the podcast, about the viability of, of liberal democratic institutions in, in Iraq. You know, what is the future of the Iraqi state, given given what happened this time around? And, you know, what what how do Iraqis feel about this? The U.S. invasion on 2003 promised the world that Iraq will be an oasis of democracy. Iraqis also thought that uh, Iraq will enjoy all these fruits of liberal on um, 2004, more than 85%, according to our poll, uh, more than 85% of Iraqis uh, have supported democracy. More than 80% refused at that time uh, a strong leader 
to be their late to, to be their uh, their leader uh, the situation now is dramatically shifted so right now more than 75% of Iraqis are asking for a strong leader. Two-thirds of Iraqis right now, they welcome uh, a military government. Uh, Iraqis uh, have no faith anymore in democracy. So we don't have uh, a real uh, separation of power. We don't have an open uh, economy, open market uh, uh, economy. Uh, Iraq is suffering uh, from a severe, severe corruption, though more than 70% of Iraqis still, still believe that democracy is the best available uh, political system, is the best uh, existed uh, political system but they are not seeing their country going in the, uh, in the right direction toward uh, a real democracy. As bleak and sad as that is, I think that's an interesting uh, juxtaposition because, you know, one, on one hand, you have a population that does believe that democracy is the, what they want, but at the same time, they also, the same, about the same percentage, are, are looking for a strong man right now. So I think yes. that's a really fascinating, it, it's the classic, you know, institutions versus stability question. And right now it seems that they're so disjointed that, that it, it does look rather bleak uh, going forward, at least in the immediate term. Uh, what I'd like to do is, is shift back to Zainab a little bit here. And, you know, corruption is not the only uh, pr force or pressure here that could be uh, affecting not only the stability of the Iraqi state, but also the um, individual stability of Iraqi families and individuals. Um, you mentioned before climate change being one of them, and I was thinking maybe you could elaborate a little bit further about some of these additional pressures uh, that are being placed on the state. I think, um, you know, climate change specifically is probably uh, one of the most urgent issues that's facing Iraq right now, and it will increase in importance um, as the years progresses. Um, when we speak of climate change, um, we are talking here about years and years of neglect. So this is before 2003, Saddam Hussein, for example, dry the marshland. That has a huge impact on, um, you know, the um, agriculture sector, has a huge impact on the environmental and ecological formation in the country. And then, um, just like Munkin mentioned, uh, you have an oil winter economy as the main source of income for the state. And so other sectors of the economy, like industrialization, um, agricultural sector, were, were neglected in, in favor of uh, supporting and just focusing on the oil sector as the main source of income because it generates a lot of wealth. Then comes 2003, and now you have years of conflict, war, outdated infrastructure, um, you know, um, neglect of the agriculture sector, and very limited state capacity to respond to these things um, that really put added pressure and increase the impact of the climate crisis on Iraq. For example, Iraq's limited capacity means that it cannot fully negotiate effectively with countries, labor countries like Turkey, 
um, in order to access water resources. This is not only because um, there's limited capacity, but also Iraq is dependent uh, largely on um, trade relationships with Turkey, a lot of goods coming from Turkey into Iraqi markets. And so there is this trade dependency, but there's also a limited state capacity combined with um, corruption that's really limit the capacity of the state to respond to the climate crisis. The result is that we are seeing temperatures increase drastically. There are temperatures are hitting about 50 degrees Celsius every like very frequently. We are seeing huge droughts, more frequent, more severe. This year is considered one of the most uh, massive droughts that hit Iraq in decades. We are seeing um, Iraq losing about 100 square kilometers of urban land every year due to um, you know, the desert growing to, to herbal land and green spaces. Um, and so what that is doing, it's really impacting the agricultural sector, but also taking the livelihood and the source of income for a lot of farmers and a lot of local communities who live on these land. Um, what is that doing is forcing a lot of these families um, to move to urban centers. These urban centers are already overpopulated. Um, like Monk had mentioned, um, the main sort of form of employment is the public sector, but the public sector is already bloated and access to employment within the public sector tends to happen through sort of a clientelism network and who you know and bribes and so on. A lot of folks who are moving to these to urban centers are lack the social capital and the human capital to be able to function effectively in these spaces. So a lot of them are falling into the informal and illegal economy. Um, a lot of youth are using um, important resources like education and healthcare. Women um, role in these local communities are being drastically shifted and changing because of this move. Uh, we have reports of increasing level of suicide among farmers who are choosing to stay um, on the land. And so all of this is devastating um, in terms of, you know, climate change is steering the fabric of society, but also it's going to impact oil dependency and Iraq's oil dependency, um, you know, on the energy sector and on the oil market. When you have increase in sand and dust storms in terms of frequency and intensity, that will uh, you know, stop at least uh, temporarily, uh, the, you know, oil production in the field that was going to impact transportation and so on. So as we are expecting to see more and more of that, as we are expecting to see more and more uh, increase in temperatures and shortage in water, all of which are necessary to have, um, you know, successful oil extraction process, you need water, you need decent temperatures, and you need clear skies to be able to, for your equipment to function. All of this will impact even the oil industry that the country depends on. And since the country does not have a diversified economy, um, impacting the only source of income will not all, will just increase and add an added layer of political and economic stability. Again, when combined with a decline in legitimacy in the system, this could be a crisis um, of inst uh, instability, not only in Iraq, but really regional instability and beyond. And we might see mass migration, climate mass migration outside of Iraq. But the region, some parts of it will become, just according to some reports, uninhabitable. So even the region is not equipped to handle this. 
Um, so this is really not just an Iraq problem, but it's a global problem that's going to hit soon. And um, Iraq will be the first, one of the first places that will be severely impacted and drastically impacted by it. You know, an issue like this, while it may be immediate and long term at the same time, is so important to the, the very institutions we were talking about earlier. So I think, you know, it, it ties in very well how some of these issues are you know, on the back burner, so to so to speak, when it comes to the Iraqi government, but they should be on the front uh, because it's fueling many of the problems that uh, Iraqis are saying that they have with uh, the current state of the state. But I'd, I'd like to finish up with one last question. Um, obviously, the dialogue that you two participated in was about U.S.-Iraq relations, and we haven't touched very much upon the United States other than uh, Munquist's comment earlier about uh, most Iraqis view the United States almost conspiratorially at this point, rather than as a partner. So lastly, I'd like to ask both of you, given all of these challenges, given all of these, these problems that need to be worked out, do you believe there is a role for the United States going forward? For, for me, I do believe that the, the U.S. has a vital role. It has not only a role, it has a responsibility. It has an ethical responsibility. Uh, uh, it's not only responsibility toward Iraqi people, but it also has uh, a big responsibility toward thousands of U.S. Uh, uh, soldiers who killed in, in Iraq. Uh, United States uh, invested more than two trillion, two to three trillion dollars of taxpayers in, in Iraq since 2003. So the, uh, uh, it is uh, an obligation uh, for uh, United States to, to be involved uh, in Iraq, but involved not in a way that reminds Iraqis uh, of U.S. as an occupier. Uh, uh, Iraqis need to feel that they have a good partner. Still, our uh, our polls show that though the favorability of United States among Iraqis is very low, and uh, both Iraq and Iran, uh, sorry, uh, U.S. and Iran are the l l least. Uh, uh, favorable countries uh, for Iraqis. But when we ask Iraqis about economic partnership, uh, scientific partnership, etc., etc., always United States come in the top. So they realize the importance of a good relation with the United States. United States now, after 20 years of the invasion, should become uh, uh, one of the experts in Iraq. If United States make the same uh, 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 mistake that Obama administration did uh, when it pulled out of Iraq, this vacuum will be filled by different parties, ISIS, uh, uh, terrorist organizations, Iran, uh, uh, China, right now China is trying very hard to, to, to have a step in, uh, in, uh, on Iraq map. 
Russia is trying uh, uh, very hard through their uh, alliance with Iran and China to uh, to compete with United States in this uh, region. Iraq will continue at least for the coming couple uh, uh, decades one of the main providers of oil. This makes Iraq is very important for the oil market and the most recent events uh, took place in the world uh, uh, proved that uh, the world uh, cannot cannot uh, uh, get out of, of the curse of the oil. Uh, the oil will continue as one of the main motivation uh, or one uh, one of the main machines for the uh, current global. Uh, system. So I do believe that there is uh, an obligation, there is a responsibility, and there are a lot of advantages from such partnership between Iraq and United States. And if this partnership is broken, then this vacuum will be filled by others definitely. I agree with Munkad, you know, with everything he said. And I would like to also argue that um, the, the usual tools and language and mechanism that the U.S. have used in the past to approach Iraq and approach Iraqi civil activists and Iraqi political actors is not as effective. So I think something like climate change can represent a very serious opening to the U.S. to get involved, specifically in terms of technology, in terms of providing resources for farmers. Um, one of the issues that farmers are facing because of the drought is that uh, our outdated irrigation system making the drought impact even more severe. We depend on sort of rainfall and all of that to, to water the land, but with the decline in rainfall levels, um, lands are being drying out. So the U.S. has the, the technology and really developed sort of different mechanisms and tools and resources to deal with droughts in the United States, and they've been effective. And so to work directly with local communities by providing resources, by engaging them with how to stabilize the agricultural sector, how to stabilize their livelihood, how to maintain these communities, I think this is really important into lifting uh, sort of the, the, you know, the favorability of the United States among, among the population and stabilizing Iraq overall, because it's gonna minimize a little bit the impact of the economic crisis and political crisis that's gonna emerge from climate change, but it also help in diversifying the, a little bit the Iraqi's economy and minimize that dependency on oil resources, which overall I think has an impact on minimizing corruption, stabilizing the political institution and so on. I want to emphasize that the, re the resource curse, right? In the literature, we keep hearing about the resource curse is not given, but in the case of Iraq, it existed for a while, whether through the rise of a dictatorship and the rise of hybrid state. So minimizing the impact of the resource curse by supporting other sectors of the economy and stabilizing these sectors will not only minimize the impact of the resource curse and bring political stability overall, or at least a little bit of it, um, but also will help stabilize the social fabric of society, minimize conflict, and the possibility of uh, you know citizens and the population needing to depend 
on other sources of protection and support like militias, like, uh, you know, China and so on. So I think the U.S. has a really great opportunity to work with these local communities. The challenge will always be is that foreign aid um, is another source of rent. And oftentimes you will find cartels and militias that form around these things where um, different political, different civil activists and so on, they will start forming sort of imaginary uh, groups and think tanks, et cetera, to have access to these resources. So oftentimes very little of the money and the support will get to the local community. And because if it's a corrupt state, a lot of it will be wasted. Um, so the challenge will be how to navigate that. And to emphasize, actually, Sweden just gave a really um, massive support to uh, Iraq's sort of fight for climate change. So other countries are already doing that. And it will be essential for the U.S. to really um, jump in and also keep in mind that at middlemen, these civil activists that sometimes are, you know, representative of the state and just another way and another tool to kind of, through corruption, have access to these resources, how to bypass that and immediately work with the local communities. And I think that will have huge effort into improving the, the image of the U.S., but also stabilizes the country and the region overall. Well, thank you for those comments, both of you. Uh, it's, it's encouraging to end on the note that there is an open door for partnership on certain issues. And I think that's, that climate change is certainly one that the United States could, could be helpful with in more ways than mm -hmm. one, not just you know, through resources, but also technology and, you know, and other types of, of um, assistance. So it's good to know that there are those opportunities and avenues, despite the fact that we're obviously dealing with a lot of challenges in Iraq. So Zainab, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, of course. <laughs> and Mankith, also, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was so a pleasure. Thank you. And if you'd like to know more about the future, potentially, of the U.S.-Iraq relationship, I'd like to direct you all to a report that was released earlier this year on the Holling Center website. Thank you very much for listening. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.